The NBA Finals are heating up. Looking for hot takes on all the postseason action? The Old Man and the Three, presented by BMW, is the podcast to listen to for the ultimate finals coverage. Host and former NBA sharpshooter J.J. Redick not only has a plugged-in perspective on the action from his time in the league, but he's also announcing the games in real time for ESPN. J.J. has the ultimate insider point of view, and he's taking you along for the ride as he breaks down the best defensive schemes, dunks, and drives from each game. And speaking of incredible drives, there's no better place to tune into your new favorite podcast, The Old Man and the Three, than in a standard-setting BMW. Luxury meets power to create a wholly new driving experience. Push the limits this NBA season with the brand that set the ultimate standard. BMW, the ultimate driving machine. This is the Straight Up Breakdown Podcast with Greg Smith and Jay Foreman. Exclusively on the Herd App Media Network. Tell it to me straight up. Hello. Welcome into the Straight Up Breakdown podcast, proudly part of the Hale Varsity Network. I am Greg Smith, your Christmas tree already up because it's 2020 and what is time, friend? <laughs> I'm, I'm Jay Foreman, the distinguished co-host that is refusing to put up the Christmas tree this year. So I am officially the Husker Grinch. Oh, come on, man. No, we can't. No, we got to we gotta talk about this. Why, why are you out here as the Husker Grinch, man? We, we need cheer in our lives. Uh, well, I'm the Husker Grinch because everybody's putting it up so early. Um, I figured why not just keep it down because I'll be over, uh, you know, not going to be one of the, the many that are going to put it up even before Thanksgiving. I mean, that is way too early on November 16th or whatever. Uh, to be putting up their Christmas tree and we haven't even broke bread on the turkey. So I am the Grinch. I am the early Christmas tree Grinch. Maybe not the Husker Grinch. It's funny though, because I actually, so we put our tree up yesterday. I actually wanted to put it up two weeks ago and we would have put it up two weeks ago had I just bought the tree that we originally wanted to get then. But I was like, oh no, we'll be okay. They'll still have it in stock. And you know what happens when you do that? Um, it ended up getting bought and sold out, and then it was sold out at every one of their stores from here to Kansas City. And so we went on this long adventure of trying to find a second replacement tree. Of course, it was more expensive, the one that we got. Um, but listen, the wife is happy. I'm happy because we got to start the Christmas tree uh, festivities early. We watched some Christmas movies yesterday. It was all good. And so you went all the way... <laughs> You went all the way Christmas, right? You you just didn't go just a little bit. You just went all in and say, all right, you got it done. So maybe that's the best way to do it is get it over with. And then uh, then you can lock the doors come Christmas tree. So that, you know, the I guess, they, well, I like my in-laws, but, you know, I'm not sure uh, about you or anybody else. So you don't have to have too many people over. Yeah, you know, it's funny, like, it's, it's weird. We, neither of our, like, my family or her family, like, live anywhere close, so we're always having to travel um, somewhere fairly far, whether it's Chicago, Mississippi, or Florida, and so it'll be weird this year not going anywhere, um, it, the tra- like, not having to travel, the, the actual act of traveling is fine, like, it's gonna suck not seeing folks. Um, but, and I like them, so it's all good. So that's good. And I'm, they, they listen. So just so y'all know, I, I love my in-laws. Yeah. I mean, I like, I like my in-laws too. Uh, they live close. So I appreciate them having them around. Uh, I got some, you know, obviously in-law, one of my in-laws is diabetic and stuff like that. So we have to be real careful and make sure not to expose them. So that's the only reason we wouldn't be seeing them. But I know majority of people during holidays, 
they say that uh, they like to, uh, you know, keep the, sh- the visits nice and short. But I actually enjoy it just because uh, they all like football. They all like to take part in some uh, libations, or most of them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we don't do any of the, the bad subject talks at, during the holiday. So we definitely, uh, you know, keep it light and cheerful. Yeah, no, that's always good. Now, listen, something that was not light and cheerful this week. Coach, speak to Real Talk. We start off each show kind of going through uh, one of our mainstay segments called Coach Speak. Uh, we go over something that a coach player or a talking head said, um, and we give you the straight-up breakdown of what they meant. Um, now, this week comes courtesy of Iowa head coach Kirk Ferentz, his first appearance on the show, I do believe. Um, Iowa, if you didn't see, uh, took Minnesota to the woodshed on Friday night, 35-7, to um, when Minnesota was trailing by six touchdowns in the final minute. Uh, Gophers coach P.J. Fleck called a timeout to draw something up and get something set up so that they could score and, and wouldn't get shut out, right? And so then Ferentz, who had, Iowa had three timeouts left. They decided to use all three timeouts in the final 19 seconds of the game um, because he wasn't pleased with what P.J. Fleck did. And so after the game, Kirk Ferentz said, we figured we'd take Floyd with us and leave the timeouts here. Floyd is obviously a reference to the trophy, uh, the Floyd of Rosedale that you win for winning that game between Iowa and Minnesota. Um, And then P.J. Fleck was not thrilled about what happened. He said he had no idea about Kirk Ferentz um, trolling. So back to to Kirk Ferentz about, you know, they figured that they'd take Floyd with us and leave the timeouts here. So I got to ask you, Jay, why did he do that and what did he mean? Oh, what, it, what he mean was that we don't even need to use our timeouts and we, you know, we kicked y'all tail. And that's what it is. We, we figured that you guys were just going to be okay with us, you know, kicking your tail and we, we own the trophy and definitely with some trolling, but it was definitely the, you know, we're the big brother. Um, Cause I beat him last year too, I think. So. Yeah. They the beat fact him that, five or six the, times in a row. Actually. Right. So, the, so for the fact that PJ Fleck took the timeout, which is, you can look at it both ways. Some some people just say, look, just get the game over with the loss. Uh, he wanted to score, didn't want to get shut out, which, you know, I can understand his point. But then also I can understand Kirk Ferentz's points. He said, OK, if you want to be petty, I can obviously be more petty than you. And that's a, that's the Iowa program. And they just used all three timeouts just to get underneath their skin. Now, Minnesota ended up scoring. But Kirk Ferentz and the Iowa Hawkeyes got the last lap. And they got the last lap because they are now – start to troll people on social media and they're playing pretty good football right now. Um, and they, they flat out destroyed Minnesota. And so that makes it even better. So they got the trophy, they kicked their butt and then they won. they won during the game as far as being petty. Then they doubled down on it, uh, as being petty and obviously in the media afterwards. So it's something that, uh, you know, PJ Fleck is having a rough go at it and I'm not, I don't feel sorry for him. Um, no, but, you know, I, I wish it was another team that- besides Iowa. Yeah, the funny thing is that you don't feel sorry for him. Nobody seems to feel sorry for him outside of Minneapolis, right? Like, it's one of those things where, weirdly enough, and I don't listen, I, I, don't, I think I know why. It's because he's so out there, um, and they had their good season last year, and there are a lot of people around the league that think that that was kind of a flash in the pan. But they're not the first team um, to take shots at Minnesota, right? Like, Maryland did that whole thing after they beat them where they had that social media graphic. Um, I, I forget if they were the ones that did boat sunk or whatever. Somebody did that. So it might be a couple more teams um, that have trolled them as well. People just seem to really like 
beating Minnesota. Like, it's just a thing this year where I don't know if when Minnesota was winning those games last year that they were talking a lot of mess during those games or what was happening, but teams are really enjoying the fact that they're catching them on a downswing this year and they're definitely letting them know about it, which is really interesting because you don't, like, you sometimes see it where, like, one big rivalry team, like when Ohio State and Michigan play, and Ohio State acts like there's no chance that Michigan's going to beat them because they never really do, right? Like, you kind of get that. Um, but you usually don't see it between kind of random teams like Maryland and Minnesota. Iowa and Minnesota are a rivalry, so you see it a little bit more. But Kirk Ferentz has not really been one to do stuff like this. So it just seems like everybody is reveling in the fact that they're being able to beat up on Minnesota right now. Well, yeah, because, I mean, P.J. Fleck is a, the, the type of person and the type of coach is when you have success, he takes it way too far. And everything he does is about him, but he tries to massage it like it's about the team, right? Mm-hmm. The, the whole sprinting down the sideline, you know, from, the I think, the third to fourth quarter, you know, jumping, doing the, like, wave or whatever when after every time they win, taking his time getting in the locker room where the guys can't take their pads off and they got to sit here and wait for him not only to do interviews and then figure out how he's going to get, you know, on social media of him jumping into to the players when the players should be celebrating amongst themselves. And, and I know Scott and those guys did it, but it was, it's always about PJ. And you know what? He's just one of those guys. He's a lot like Jim Harbaugh. Uh, he comes in and, he, and he's a, you know, he's a big personality and comes in like a tidal wave, but he, you know, you rub a lot of people wrong uh, throughout the years. And that's why you see him at places about four or five years max, because, what his personality and what he does only can last for short period, short stints, even though he's done a lot of good things up there in Minnesota. And I will give him credit there where, you know, he's, he's brought some somewhat of stability to the program and notoriety, uh, but his personality gets in the way and that's just who he is. And you know what, he, he's not going to change, but he's also the guy that everybody likes to beat up on because um, we know when he's winning, um, you know, it's, 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 it's arrogance, it's cockiness, but then it's overboard. Um, and, you know, you can see right through it. Generally, the people that have been in sports and been in the, the media business and been in college and pro sports, see right through it. Um, and then, you know, when Maryland beat them and beat them pretty soundly, uh, you know, they, they, they start trolling them. So I think everybody's getting their shots in when they can, because the, the Gophers were thought of as the preseason darlings. Right. But, right, right. but, but they told on themselves when he, he didn't want to play. And you heard about stories of guys going home, them cutting, you know, them, their program or athletic department, you know, cutting their scholarship money or the per diem money or whatever you want to call it guys coming back and they just didn't look good. Then he didn't want to play. Then he stepped out there and I'll give them credit where they were the first game against Michigan. They had five or six guys, out with COVID, good players, and still out, I think, maybe. A couple guys, especially on their offensive line, which is kind of what makes their team go. Yeah, that's and, they, and, and they went out there and competed, unlike some other teams up there in Wisconsin where they kind of, you know, massaged the rules and, and figured out a way to kind of, you know, pick and choose who they wanted to play and try to back their way into a, a Big Ten championship. But at the end of the day, they got destroyed, and uh, it's always a good day when Minnesota loses, and it'll be an even better day when Iowa starts losing again, too, as well. <laughs> Right. And, it, and it's really interesting. It's funny because you said, you know, people like they either have been in football or have been around in media for a while, kind of understand what's happening up there at Minnesota when it comes to just how in front of the program P.J. Fleck is. And that's something that I've always noticed about what he does. And it's funny, like it, it cuts both ways, because on one hand, you can say, OK, he built 
you know, he built a strong culture up there and, and you know what to kind of expect from that program. And that was a lot of the talk last year, right? Which is always the talk when things are going well, but when things have not gone well, and it was like this before last season, it's like this, this season is okay. Is PJ too much out there? Because you see it where every promotional thing that they put out, he's the main focus. Like everything seems to be about him. Um, it would not surprise me if he like had some like life-size photo of himself in his office. Like it just seems like PJ really likes himself and likes to put himself above the team. Um, which again, all of that is all good when you're winning. Um, but obviously it comes back to bite them in the butt when they start to go in the downturn a little bit, uh, because not only do they have problems internally with the team, they're having problems on the field and teams really enjoying uh, sticking it to them this season. Yeah, it's uh, he's definitely, uh, you know, like I said, he's a big personality. Um, it's all about him and it, it, it gets tiring and it gets tiring to everybody else quick. And he's like I said, I, I can say this. And, and also I can say it and then also give him credit. He's done some good things. And listen here, he came in there and Minnesota's athletic department. If you go back to the, even all the way back when Clem Haskins was there with the, you know, cheating scandal as far as like grades, the numerous sexual assaults and, and sexual misconduct in their, their yeah, athletic they department. They've, they've, I mean, we're going on like 25 years of continuous BS in their athletic department. And for him to take on that challenge, Turn that team around. I mean, you, you got also got to look at it. after his first year. They're like, man, we need to, this dude might be you know fool's gold. They have right. a magical year, um, and they lost a little good, a lot of good players to the NFL. And they probably would have been a little bit better if guys wouldn't have got COVID, um, or you know, started off a little bit earlier about COVID. But I think I'll, I'll say this, and I said the same thing about the you know Frost and the USC when or UCF is you know, there's, there's somewhere in between the first year and the second year. And that's where PJ Fleck is. He's somewhere in between his first year that he was there and the last, in last year, what they had. And now you're seeing it the third year. Um, so, you know, look, he's, it'll be interesting to see if he battles through it. I mean, there's other coaches that are getting clipped right now. I mean, and it'll start to ramp up more as we get towards the end of the season, you see, you know, South Carolina, you know, clip Will Muschamp, who is kind of like PJ Fleck, but he's more of a, weird quirky a-hole type of character where pj fleck is like look at me you know we, we scored 10 points it's, you know and i i they wouldn't have scored 10 without me um you could look at the lsu situation that you could see something happen within a year or two so it'll be interesting to see how long he stays there um and then what happens after he leaves because Leader in leadership positions, whether it's politics, sports, or businesses, generally you see what type of leader or coach they are or were, and you can athletic department as well, how they how it's operating year or two after they're done. Whether it's the players, you know how good of players they have, um, how they continue to you know take what they learned from the previous guy or staff, and then also you know fall in line with the new staff and then go from there. So. It'll be interesting to see in the next two, two, three years, or even this offseason, what happens with him. Um, you know, his name was out floated out there after last year, and he got a new new deal, or kind of they reworked his deal. Um, so is he kind of like a Kurt Ferentz, many, you know, younger brother, where, you know, his name's always floated out there, kind of a la Bo Pelini and always getting a new contract extension every single time a uh, new job comes up, but he's never truly serious about taking it. And that lets you know he's not really committed to the program. So this next year or two will really tell you 
a lot about PJ Fleck uh, outside of the wins and losses. And so it'd be interesting to keep an eye on it moving forward and the rest of the season, obviously. Yeah, and it'll definitely be something that we kind of keep an eye on. Obviously, it has implications for Nebraska. Let's break that down. And that's why I kind of want to shift gears to the Huskers, as, as all of you listening to this know. Uh, Nebraska got their first victory of the season, 30-23 to 23 over Penn State. Um, we had the, the debut of redshirt freshman Luke McCaffrey, a quarterback who got the start over Adrian Martinez after Nebraska put out their quote-unquote projected depth chart. Uh, before the game I mean, I, you can hear it in my voice I really like dislike these shadow games with the depth chart uh, but that's a different subject for a different time I guess it kind of worked um, though I don't know how many points that's actually worth um, but the Huskers got the victory and I actually the where I want to start with this is that I actually want to make an analogy here I think the Huskers actually need to be a little bit more like Bane okay and stay with me here. Bane from, uh-huh. from uh, Dark Knight Rises, where do you remember the scene, and a lot of you do, when uh, Batman kind of finally reckons with who Bane is and, like, the guy that he's going up against. He's sitting in the cave with Alfred, and they're watching that video of Bane attacking the stock exchange, right? He's hitting the dude right. with moments. He's going crazy, like, his ferocity, his speed, his training, right? And Alfred says he sees the power of belief in Bane, Right. That's what Nebraska needs, and that's what they need going forward. That's what they needed to finish this game. You saw it with some of the comments that they had uh, in the post game, with so especially with the defensive players saying that they wanted to be out there, that they thought that they could do it. They wanted to be the ones to finish this game because they played a good game overall. But that's exactly what we've been saying that Nebraska needs, that power of belief. And now we get to see if this one victory – can really start to get the ball rolling for them um, as they hit kind of an interesting part of their season. You don't want to go too far ahead or look too far ahead because with the weird year that 2020 has been, uh, you definitely can't get caught looking too far down the road. You really, really need to take it week by week as the old adage goes. Um, But it was a good win for Nebraska, um, and they got the ball rolling, hopefully, for the program. Yeah, I mean, look, right now – you know, obviously it wasn't the most pretty when obviously the second half is obviously something that we'll, we'll dive into. But right now where we're at as a program, we need wins. And I don't care what they look like. They could be 10 to 9, you know, 11 to 10 or 60 to 59 or whatever the scores are. We need wins. And, you know, one of the things that Scott said that was really, really, you know, telling this is obviously I know this from, you know, coaching kids and, and, and kids are, and people are, or kids athletes are a little bit different than say like you know when I grew up is that you get their attention more when you win so everything that he's been preaching for you know five six weeks or eight weeks or however long it's been um really came to fruition keep you know, keep your nose to the grindstone keep working at it we'll get it you know it'll come it'll come and then finally they pulled one out and it's a pretty it lets you know and that they got a pretty good leadership and foundation in their team after losing that game against Penn State last week, that's a you know it's hard to come back and play or not against Penn State, excuse me, against Northwestern no last week to come back and beat Penn State, who is a desperate team, who has some athletes, um, and they're just not playing really well right now. So for them to come back and answer the bell, yes, it was at home, but just to answer the bell was was really really huge for them, and it didn't look pretty at times. Uh, it started out fast, and I think they really got on top of Penn State and what we talked about they needed to do. They needed to get up on them by 10-plus points, and they did, and they held on, and the defense went out there, which is a really, really good sign because the defense um, 
has been our best unit in our most consistent unit all three games. And so um, it's good for them to have to stop a drive, make a big play at the end. Obviously had troubles pass rushing all day, but they got home. And so that lets you know that they are, they will continue to work at it. And um, you, look, it was it, Penn State, even though they're, they're winless, it, it was is a tough test. I mean, if you you're looking at Indiana, who's kind of like the Cinderella story of co- one of the one of them of college football right now, if not the, the best one. Penn State dominated that game from a yardage standpoint and from a I, you know, I look standpoint. Right. Um, yeah. And and they and they really did it at times in this game you know, for the majority of the game. I mean, they almost doubled the yards in Nebraska. Yeah, especially in the uh, second half. Yeah. Especially in the second half, which is, you know, that lets you know they turned it up. They made some adjustments, and they just haven't been able to win. Um, so, you know, they're not the ordinary winless team. And so this is a hard out. When you got two teams that are winless, they're desperate, and they don't – they both have not done what it's taken to get over that hump. And you look at even back when Penn State played Ohio State, they played them pretty close before Ohio State kind of – you know, turned it on and separated himself, but it still was not a true blowout indicative of the score. And so um, it, it's a bigger victory from a mental standpoint um, as far as Nebraska versus the points. Right. And so this now where we're at, right. We enjoyed it for 24 hours. Now we're into the work week. I'm sure they've broken down the tape. I think on Sunday, Monday, you know, they got to get back in there and try to look towards Illinois. Um, now what they have to do is show the maturity that you need, right? And, and, and double down on the maturity. Because you remember, we talked about the defensive line from week uh, from the first game to the second game, showing us that what we saw the first game was for real because right. they played well against Northwestern. Now, in the big scheme of things, now we have to see this team as a whole to take the next step and deal with success and show them the maturity to come back this week and put the same effort and even more into this game and go out there and play an even better game, which is shouldn't be that hard, right? Because you played a good half. Now we got to play maybe a good three or four quarters, or you know we got to finish and get to the finish line and finish stronger against a you know Illinois team that we should beat. And sometimes those games are really hard. It's going to be competitive. I can tell you right now, Lovey Smith is going to have his team ready to go. Um, they started getting some turnovers. They won recently, so. Uh, it's not going to be your, you know, the, the Illinois is going to come in here and lay down. So we have to be able to do the things that we need to do, handle success. And that's been one of Nebraska's Achilles heel, Achilles heels uh, for quite some time is dealing with success. Maybe have like a big win, uh, you know, a big comeback victory and come out the next week and lay an egg. We can't go back to what we've done the first two weeks, high penalties, lackluster energy, lackluster performance, and think Illinois is just going to give us the game. we got to go take it. Um, so, you know, what the good idea of this work week is, you know, let's focus on what we did, uh, you know, what we did well, but let's not lose focus on what we need to, you know, work on. And it's a good co- coaching tape as well, uh, especially from the offense and defensive line, I think, is because Penn State pretty much kicked their butt, you know, from, you know, our kick both of our lines' butt. And we, but we were able to kind of step up and kind of execute when we needed to. But overall, Penn State's defensive line gave our offensive line troubles. Penn State's offensive line, from a physicality standpoint, was maybe uh, at the most physical uh, offensive line that they've played, and they had a lot of nastiness to it. So it's a good learning experience for these guys, you know, for because we got a lot of young guys playing. It's a good teaching tape, but then also it's a good motivator too. We say, look, we stood up to this team and we were able to beat them. 
So now you can, you've played three different types of offensive lines. I don't know. I'm just talking about the defense. You played like a, a physically imposing one from Ohio state that is, you know, you got three or four pro guys there, right? So you got some guys that coming right out of the gate that know how to play. Then you played a more technically sound and kind of savvy one from Northwestern. And then you played some guy, kind of guys that you're young and have grit and they want to fight you. So now you can th- say that, look, we're prepared for anything. And this is how we play against one team. This is how we play against another. Now we've got to be able to play against all three and we take that to the game and we got to improve on it because this is a big uh, game for, for our defensive line where we should be winning uh, handily against Illinois' offensive line and really control the game. And so we have to step up uh, not only one step, but two steps to uh, pull out this victory and then go into uh, the next week, you know, two and two, and that's going to be an even bigger game. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting because Nebraska, what you said about Nebraska not having that letdown, um, because and, and I, my initial thought is that they will not have that letdown because of how long it took to taste that success and to taste that victory again after. And I go back to something that Scott said a couple of weeks ago about how they practice more than any team in America. Like, I feel like that adds up when you've practiced that much without being able to see the fruits of your labor on the other side. Um, And it had been almost a year, right, since they had actually won a game. And now that sounds really crazy. And it is Uh, a part of that is just because of the wonky schedule, right? And all of that after missing a game earlier this year and then losing the first couple that you got to play. Um, But they also it is like we were talking about the Indiana thing and how Indiana is maybe the darling of college football right now. Northwestern is not that far behind on that scale either. And Nebraska really should have beaten them. Um, and so now because Nebraska won this game against Penn State, maybe you look and say, OK, maybe we're kind of validated in our feelings that as a coaching staff and as players saying, hey, if we had actually played, you know, halfway decent or played closer to our potential, we would have beat a team that is, you know, going to be pr- almost, you know, in the top 20 right now and undefeated in Northwestern. We took care of business against Penn State. Let's see what we can keep do to keep this thing going. I think that my gut is that it's going to be more of a motivating factor that they got this win. And I think, and where I want to kind of go next is, is um, the now that we kind of know, and there's really not that Luke McCaffrey was amazing in this game, but he played well enough, obviously, to help them get the win. And he showed you flashes. But the effects of going into this game week, not kind of hemming and hawing and going back and forth about who the quarterback is going to be, being able to build the entire game plan around McCaffrey and what he does, I think will also have a, a big effect on this team going into next week and in a, in a team that I, Illinois – is is going to be the worst team that they've played so far. And I'm not saying that means Nebraska should take them lightly by any means, because I'm very much on record as saying is outside of Ohio State, anybody in this league can beat anybody. Like there are, I don't think that there's any gimmies. And I know that the spread opened up at what, 13 and a half, 14 points in favor of Nebraska. But they should not care about that at all. They should not be looking at that. Don't read any press clippings because you've got to go out there and execute. And we saw this last year, right? Even when Nebraska beat Illinois in that game, it was a high scoring game and Wondell Robinson kind of breakout game. 
um, you still are going to have to execute and beat that team because you know they'll be well coached by Levy, Levy Smith. You also know that they're going to come out ready to hit and seeing if they can be physical and just out-tough Nebraska. Um, and so that's going to make it really interesting. But I think it'll be a huge thing for Nebraska's offense, which really does need to get going, to have a full week of Luke McCaffrey preparing as the starter, building the game plan around him, and seeing where you go from there. Yeah, it's going to be, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to be really interested to see how much they add to it, uh, right. you know, moving forward for Luke McCaffrey. Because I think this was a – a little bit of a, a weird week because, you know, the coaches had to make a decision or Scott or whoever goes into making those decisions. They had to make a decision who starts, right? And they had to keep it under wraps and, and, and so forth and so on. And so they couldn't really, in a week's time, you know, put in a whole different game plan for Luke McCaffrey and really accentuate what he does well. And it was really fun, interesting to me that Adrian didn't play at all. Um, so you expected, you expected that he would get in, even if he didn't start. I did. I, I, uh, I thought that, uh, he was, you know, it was just going to be reversal. Like Luke McCaffrey played three series, Adrian played one or two, then so forth and so on. Because here's why, even though Luke McCaffrey had looked better in short stints, he hadn't been so productive that it was like a shoe in that he needed to start. You know what I'm saying? Even even though you saw the energy level and the leadership is probably obviously head and shoulders above Adrian, I'm talking pure production because I could look at the Northwestern game and look at about four or five plays that Adrian didn't look well where it had nothing to do with him. Right. Where then I looked at where Luke McCaffrey looked well and the guys or, or in, and in particular the younger receivers with more speed were giving him more realistic options, right? But then I looked at, you know, Luke McCaffrey didn't score any points against Northwestern, nothing against him. Uh, but then once really I kind of thought Luke would start is when he finished the game against Northwestern. Yeah. But I still, I, but I still didn't think that Adrian won play. Now back to, you know, we could, uh, you know, Illinois is, I, it's going to be interesting to say how much more comfortable everybody is with Luke playing because he, I'll, I'll tell you this, when you make such a big move, because Adrian's been such a big part of this program and still is, he started as a freshman, even when other guys had played it, everything, every, everything everybody had written or thought about was about Adrian. He was the, you know, the creme de la creme going into the season last year where they didn't want to get him hurt. He was up for the Heisman, et cetera, et cetera. We needed more weapons around him. And that was the whole focus of, you know, our development and recruitment. And then very shortly into this season, he's not starting. So it's a huge, not program defining moment, but season defining moment. And can Luke McCaffrey kickstart this season in the win column just by his pure presence and energy? And it looked like that happened for one week, but I still didn't think that Adrian wouldn't play at all. Um, and maybe that's just sometimes how the game went, because when you look at the Northwestern game, uh, I, I thought Luke would have got in there earlier in the game, uh, in the Northwestern game, and then get into primarily a lot in the second half. So right. it's just one of those things that I think is going to be a week to week basis. Um, you know, Luke McCaffrey hasn't played a whole season. Uh, teams have a week's uh, worth of game plan or game tape to game plan against them. So he's going to have to play even better from a men mentally standpoint. Uh, and they're going to have to expand their offensive playbook against Illinois. Because if you think that you're going to quarterback run game to the tune of 13 carries, 78 yards, and have Wondell Robinson back there for 16 and, and 61, and, uh, you know, only have 150, 150, 152 yards passing, it's probably not going to work out too well. We'll still win the game 
but it won't look like we need to look like we want to, because when you have your running backs have a total of nine carries, you know, for 25 yards, uh, we need more production out of that. I know Wanda Robinson Robinson played running back a lot. And I don't know if Dedrick Mills was hurt or, or what was, you know, what was going on. But at the end of the day, we need to start getting that running back run game, you know, dialed up because teams will adjust to Nebraska. They will start sitting on the, on the, on the receivers, taking away their, their first option and start taking away the quarterback run game. And so we got to expand into it. And, and there's no time like the present against Illinois, a, a team that's given up big plays uh, in the passing game. But we got to be more diligent in how we go into this game because we can't continue to do what we're doing and think we're going to have success throughout the rest of the season. And plus, it's going to expose our quarterbacks to some big hits, even though they are pretty too, or they're too tough uh, kids that can take hits. It's just a matter of physics and, and uh, you know, the way people hit in the Big Ten. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting, too, because, the, like, Nebraska will have to find a way. And we, I feel like this is a broken record, and I guess it's going to continue to be until they actually do it. And Scott said it again after the game, is they've got to find a way to generate big plays because that that's what this offense is designed for. So, like, the version of this offense that we're seeing right now where you say, okay, as a total, they ran the ball 39 times for 146 yards and averaged 3.7 yards a carry. The long run of the day was a Luke McCaffrey 22-yard run. Like, that's not how this is supposed to be. Like, this is not an offense that's supposed to just be plotting down the field, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust. It's supposed to be more wide open. Um, and until they have that element in the offense where they're springing those long runs or those long passes, um, then I don't think that this offense will look like it's supposed to. But also, you're running into a, a defensive staff this week that will coach. Like, Illinois is going to be well-prepared um, to do what you said, to take away that first option um, and to make those – they're going to make the wide receivers of Nebraska prove that they can go out and beat one-on-one -on -one coverage, which is what they should do. Um, now, we've seen Nebraska go more towards those young receivers, and we saw Xavier Betts get in there and, and get that flip pass for the touchdown, a play that he ran. I don't know how many times. Times I saw him score on that play in high school. Um, you saw Marcus Fleming get out there some more. You saw some Alante Brown as well. So they're starting to ramp those guys up. Um, but I, I still wonder if we aren't going to see the light fully come on for this offense until you really see those guys take hold out there. Um, because you just not you're just not going to be able to have a lack of separation athleticism out there and then be able to consistently beat good Big Ten teams, even as well as the defense has played uh, over the course of this season, especially in stretches. Like think about how this game goes and how much better the defense ends up looking if, you know, instead of having to be out there for those 90 plays, they were out there for 75 because the offense had done a little bit better job, right? Like that sort of stuff adds up. And that's why I kind of want to go to next about the defense in that I think, and you mentioned this earlier, that the defense has been the most consistent portion of this team. And I totally agree. Um, and I think that we're at a place now to where when the defense goes out there, I don't necessarily expect something horrible to happen or like some big bust. Like I feel like they're playing a lot more fundamentally sound. They are flying around to the football a lot more. You see gang tackling out there, more hats to the ball, as Shenander likes to say all the time. 
Um, I, I've been really impressed with what we've seen from the defense. And I thought today, like today, Saturday's game um, was the first time where we saw glimpses of the secondary that we thought we were going to see um, coming into the season, especially um, the way that they played Penn State's best receiver um, out there as well, Jahan Dotson. Yeah, they, they've done some good things. And I think they did some good things against Northwestern and did some even more against Penn State. And everybody's going to look, oh, we gave up 500 yards. Well, when you're out there dang near 100 plays right. and they're averaging about five yards a play, that, that, that's, pretty, that's pretty good football. And when you're playing, I mean, that's just the way it is. It doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're playing. Even if we played 100 plays against Illinois, they might not have 500. They're going to probably have close to 400 or over 400 yards of offense. That's just the way it is. If you're able to run 91 plays, um, you know, that's a, that's, that's a lot of football plays. Now, conversely, all the things that they did well, and I think the defensive backs did a really, really good job on a, and I think, in my opinion, on an NFL receiver, on one of the best receivers physically in the Big Ten, and Dotson, who, put, who really took, you know, Ohio State to the woodshed. And, and what they did, what I really liked, even from a schematic standpoint, and, and, I, and I haven't talked to Shenander or do you think, but just from a schematic standpoint, what they said was, we're not going to let your best guy beat us, right? So you had, you know, somebody else get off for like seven, seven carry or seven receptions for 113. Uh, Pat Freemuth, or if I'm probably Friermuth, destroyed, destroying his last name. Uh, well, you let him, you know, do his thing. And now, granted, he had a long one of 74. So it kind of, you know, makes the yards a little bit, you know, outlandish because the majority of the yards came on one catch. But what they, I liked is they said, you know, he's not going to beat us because he is a game changer. So I like that the defensive backs actually, you know, played really well and stepped up. Conversely, the thing that I would be harping on this week for our defense is third down percentage. And the reason why is Penn State, you know, reason why they were part of the reason why they are able to have 91 plays is because they went eight for 17 on third down, three of five on fourth down. Now, look, I know some of those were third and one, third and twos, where those are pretty much the offense should get them every time. But I'm talking about the, I think it's four to six of them that were third and four plus. We have got to start winning more of those, right? So that means we got to have better communication, play routes a little bit quicker, and get some more uh, detail in our pass brush lanes because the quarterbacks hurt us with a little bit of scramble as well. So those are two things. Those are the things that I would probably harp on. Look, our effort was good. Our ability to step up in times of need was obviously excellent. But we, what we really need to do to, one, give our offense more time and possession because Penn State had 13 more minutes. We need to play better on third and fourth down because when you look at 11 to 22, that's 50% on third and fourth down. I mean, that's something that Nebraska's defense has got to get a little bit better at. But I will say this is that uh, the offense, you know, needs to be a little bit better. So it kind of works hand in hand. But uh, in order to really get the defense to improve is you got to coach them up hard, even though it isn't fair, because sometimes going out and playing defense isn't fair, right? You got in some bad situations. Uh, they had the ball that sometimes down in the plus territory, we got to step up and get off the field. So, um, you know, overall, I think the defense is getting better. Um, and each week they're getting better. Um, now I want to see really big improvement against a team that you should, I wouldn't say dominate, but really have a good day against, uh, against Illinois. They're going to try to run a simple, simple inside zone power run game. They got two big receivers that hands are somewhat suspect. So you, when you got big receivers that are really, really big up top, you got to make them uh, 
take them off their initial route. So you got to play a little bit man coverage, even in zone. You got to be up there and kind of get them off their route and, and, and screw up their timing. And then uh, it allows some of our guys that have played well, which is our inside linebackers. And we saw some growth out of uh, pain this week. I think you saw expanded role for him. The last play of the game, he was in there on third down. So that should tell you something. You know, it's not all about who starts the game. It's who finishes. Right. Uh, and, and those are the guys you want to look at. You saw Cale Tanner out there. So you actually, you know, you're starting to see some life out of him. You've seen Payne, and then you've seen Stilly, and then you see Big Ty Robinson, and all of them had a factor in that last play. And that should continue to, to, to go on. So this Illinois game moving forward is a big step for the defense. And if the defense takes the mentality, we have to go out and win the game, then the offense can actually play a little bit freer. So we, we saw a little bit of that in the first half, kind of clinched up a little bit in the second half. Uh, but the defense needs to go out and have a, a, that same mentality as to win the game and the same mentality that they had to close out the game against Penn State and let it boil over into Illinois' week. I want to see a lot more swagger, um, a lot more, you know, now they've done it. You know, they've kind of, you, you know, they kind of made their name for themselves. You get you get what I'm saying? So now I want to see a little bit more swagger. You see a little, not more celebration and get like penalties, but you know when a team is playing and they're really starting to believe it. Now it's time to really start believing it because the communication could get better, then you can play a lot freer, then you'll actually make more plays. Yeah, it's one of those things, too, where and, and we started off the show kind of talking about this in the segment is, you know, it's a lot easier to coach these things that you're talking about in a win, right? Because you, you the guys get excited. We got a taste of it. Okay, boom, let's, let's move on. And now we're going to continue to take to that coaching because now we've got a taste of success and know that if we do the things that they're asking us to do and we continue to play within ourselves and within the defense, and that has been an issue before in the past, then we know that we can go out there, speaking as the defense, and, and dominate this game. And I, I'm right with you on that. It's, I'm really curious when you get to this game um, next Saturday against Illinois, does the defense come out kind of locked and loaded from the beginning, knowing and behaving like, hey, we can go out here and I don't not necessarily even shut them out, but we don't believe that they can move it on us. And because of that, we're going to go out and play sound, fundamental football and do the little things that we're supposed to do and really show that. Like that would be a huge step in the right direction for this defense because we've seen them in flashes the same way that we, we've seen as a team, like the team have these flashes of really good play. Now it's time to see it for an entire game um, with this defense, because right now I feel, uh, I feel more confident. And I think most people do that the defense can go out there and put together a dominating performance more so than the offense, which is really interesting. It doesn't feel like I, I'm like, surprised that we're at this point but when you see the athletes now that they have on defense and the way that they're kind of turning it loose it feels like to me that just kind of a high level view of what's happening with the defense is that they feel they look more athletic and faster but they also look like they're they have a better knowledge of the scheme and that also, and we've talked about this, you and I, Jay, that that makes teams look faster as well when you can play a little bit more loose and free and you don't have to think so much. I think that it's a combination of factors that's making this defense look a lot better right now. Yeah, I mean, look, what you're saying is is all true. And, it's, and the great thing about it is I don't even think we've even touched the surface because when you look at our defense and our defensive line, you don't see a lot of stunts, a lot of shifts before the, you know, the play you know, they're just still giving them a little bit in each week or kind of, you know, each season. 
but you've seen a big growth of these guys. You've seen it from, and then now you see more depth, right? You see, yep. uh, you know, a Luke Reimer. Now you got Honus played pretty decent. You saw Colin Miller do some good things. You saw Jojo Doman play well. You, you see Caleb Taylor do some things. And you see Payne do well. And I'm going to tell you somebody that I know that hasn't rushed a passer a lot, even in high school, and he's been hurt since he's been at Nebraska, but was a high, you know, star recruit. Nick Heinrich got in there. Yep. Um, and, and put his, you know, hand in the ground. And, and there was two different times that he, you know, hit the quarterback and was right at his ankles. And this is a guy that doesn't, you know, isn't – he was playing inside linebacker. And for whatever reason, I've been always screaming for him to play outside linebacker. And he did – he's starting to do pretty well. He's starting to look like the, the high, you know, level recruit. And that's what – you look, you're, I just named three or four guys. And last year we couldn't – we were talking about – we were just hoping anybody could provide any pass for us. Now, this game, the defensive line and, and, and didn't play as well as far as, um, you know, getting to the passer and, and not getting off blocks. But at the end of the day, I'm starting to look I'm, – I'm liking the depth. I like the, the ex- expansion of knowledge. Um, I like, I'm liking the pre-snap communication. I like the depth. And, and one of the things I also say is that, you know, Shenander's able to do some things. So, like, when you look at Williams coming in and getting the, you know, sack, forced fumble, pick up, touchdown – the reason why he's able to have Williams do that, where, you know, you Williams and just nuke, they're kind of like the same player, both hitters, not very good open field tacklers, in my opinion, right, is because of the emergence of Farmer. You saw what Farmer did when he had to last week against Northwestern, which is giving the coaches confidence to put him back in there, find a role where you can get some pass rush or manufacture some pass rush with a safety that's physical, that can get to the quarterback, right, with speed. And you can see that what they did, that's what they kind of did at times at UCF with Griffin because he's not too much bigger than than Williams. Then you saw a corner blitz, right, because the safeties are more detailed in, in their assignments and they play with good technique, high and inside, not letting anything, you know, beat them over the top with the corner blitz, for, front, or corner blitz from the boundary. You got a little bit of pressure there. So they, they have different things that they can expand on and do, but you can't do it without players really diving into the playbook and really going out there and be willing to play a role and play different roles. So now you're seeing – uh, everything that they'd like to see on defense, and it should just get better every single week. And this, and I, and I said it before, this week against Illinois is, is is will tell me a lot more about this defense than the first three weeks. What it'll tell me from it, from a mentality standpoint is this defense willing and able to handle success? Are they willing and able to go out there and put in on a good performance when they have to? And like you said, you know, there's one thousand more percent. Uh, confidence in our defense and our offense right now, regardless of who's at quarterback and, and how many, you know, more in, how much more energy Luke McCaffrey has gotten. And that's why I said, you know, Adrian should probably still be playing, or I think he, I'm surprised he's not playing. So at the end of the day, the defense rolling up there know what they have to do. It's a home game. Um, so they should feel comfortable. They kind of got the first win out of their way. Um, the defense in a lot of ways has won the game, you know, obviously, you know, they're on the field last. And so they should take it pride in themselves to go out there and have a good performance, a dominating performance against Illinois. And what does that look like? Uh, I don't think you're going to go and, you know, blank them, right? I don't think that's going to happen. But you need to be consistent. I want to see the third down percentage improve. I want to see the tackling continue to improve. I want to see the defensive line um, play a lot better from, you know, creating a new offensive line, but then getting off blocks. And then I want to see more tackles for losses and more consistent pressure on the quarterback whether it's sacks or, you know, getting him off his spot and then make more plays. If they continue, if they do those five things, you're going to see a pretty good performance uh, come Saturday and you're going to see a lot of people happy 
and then their confidence is going to be extremely high going into that next week because the defense is going to have to play even better in, in two weeks. But you can't worry about two, the second week until you handle the business in the first week. Week by week is the, is, is the motto, like always, but it's definitely the motto uh, in 2020. Now, every week we end the show uh, with a segment called Put Them On Blast. Put Them On Blast. Where we basically put somebody on blast uh, for something they did or said. I want to kick things off with this week with uh, Bob Arum, the, the super producer, or super promoter uh, in boxing. Uh, you guys should have seen that Bud Crawford uh, won his fight again this weekend, continues to prove why he's the best pound-for-pound fighter in the world right now. But after he won that fight, um, his contract, uh, Crawford's contract with top rank is coming up. And after he won that fight, uh, Bob Arum was talking about that situation and said, the question is, quote, the question is, do we want to keep him? I could build a house in Beverly Hills on the money I've lost on him these last three, fight, three fights. A beautiful home. Nobody questions Crawford's innate tremendous ability by beating a naturally bigger guy decisively. That's a big statement that he's making. And then he continued, this is courtesy of The Athletic. The question is, does it pay the bills? Look, you can have the greatest opera singer in the world. If the fans don't support it, you're out of business. I, I don't uh, – <laughs> listen – I get that Bud Crawford is not the promoter and the mouthpiece that I guess Floyd Mayweather was, or maybe, you know, Manny Pacquiao even was in a way. But if you can't find a way to promote and market the guy who everybody admits right now is the best pound-for-pound fighter in the world, that's a you problem. Like, I don't understand how we are in a situation where Bob Arum would think that we should then let Bud Crawford go. And maybe part of this is, and you know, and I don't know, Jay, if you went um, to any of those fights in Omaha that Bud Crawford had. I went to two of them. It's electric when that happens here. So you always have that kind of bankable asset here in Omaha and Nebraska. You can't do that right now because of COVID. Uh, but that was amazing to be able to see. Like, I just don't – and I've always kind of been puzzled as to how they seem to promote him. And you just don't see Bud out there as much as you do some other fighters. I'm putting Bob Arum on blast because I just think that's ridiculous that you can't find a way to promote the guy who's the best fighter in the world right now. Yeah, everything he's saying is a, is a you problem. And really what he's doing is he's telling on himself because anybody that has – you know, any common sense is you, is you got a guy out there telling telling you, like, I haven't done my job good enough. It's not easy enough, right? And what he's wanting is he's wanting Bud Crawford to do all the work besides be the best fighter in the world, pound for pound, and the best fighter in the world, right? So, because it's easier with Floyd Mayweather, because Floyd Mayweather just got a big mouthpiece. He's all over social media. He's on every Right, and always getting himself in trouble. Like- he's always, yeah, he's always in trouble. Uh, he lives in Las Vegas, so he's gambling. He's in, always in front of the, the camera whenever he can. He's going to L.A. He's, he's promoting. You know, he's flying around with a million dollars in his, you know, in his backpack and all that type of stuff. So it's, it's easy with Floyd. Floyd was, a great, is a, is, was and is a great box, boxer, undefeated, you know, one of the greatest of all time. Big mouth, like even bigger than, my, you know, Muhammad Ali. Flamboyant, big personality. So Bob Amber didn't have to do anything. So now you have Bud, who's not Floyd, but – in my opinion, just as good as a boxer, right? He's going to go down and legendary. He's going to, I'd be very surprised if he ever loses. So you got the best fighter in the world. And then now you're saying, well, it doesn't pay the bills. What it doesn't do, and this is what it mean, what he means by not paying the bills. What it means is it's not easy money. And I have to actually have to go to work and get off my, you know what, 
Yeah, to I gotta actually go do stuff to. I, I, I gotta actually go do stuff. I gotta return phone calls. I actually gotta make fights. I actually gotta promote the stuff that he did early in his career. He doesn't want to do it. And Bud has a personality that's sellable, and it's something that's that he hasn't got out of his, you know, out of his out of his own little box to do because he's been working with Floyd so long, so it's kind of been easy. He just sat in front of Floyd and said, "Okay, what's the share? Okay, I, you need to promote it." Okay, you, you, Floyd is like, I'll, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this. No, from a business standpoint, you're, you're dealing with Floyd who knew how to promote it and he just reaped the benefits. So Bob Arum is, 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 is pompous when you say that, right? Yeah, and it's, it's crazy because the thing, to me, the sellable thing about Bud Crawford is that he, he's a worker, right? He's just a guy, he's a guy who outworks everybody now. He's extremely talented, naturally gifted, um, but also, but he is the best. Like that, that's what you're selling. Like in the fact that you, like you said, really just want to take the easy way out because you know that Floyd, like in the case of Floyd, Floyd Mayweather will say something outlandish or do something crazy that will get people talking about it. So like, you should be able to sell greatness. I, we're not talking about a guy who's pretty good. We're talking about a guy right. who's all time great. Like it's ridiculous to say that you can't promote that. Like that. Like we said, that that's a you problem. Now, who, who's the who do you want to put on blast? Well, I'm gonna put put this guy on blast who who's uh, you know made his way around the NBA. Uh, you know, has worked himself into a Hall of Fame player, but also I think he's a Hall of Fame bad. Not wouldn't say bad teammate but a Hall of Fame loser in the playoffs, right? I think he's the ultimate regular season champion, uh, the ultimate ball hog, but he's probably, if he's, he's maybe, or not maybe, he's probably one of the top six one-on-one -on -one players of all time. But as you know, in basketball, which we all love, uh, is a team sport, okay? That's why you called LeBron James King James. I am putting James Harden on blast, and here's why. <laughs> here's why. He, he's made, it, made himself into a superstar in Houston. He's had Dwight Howard, right? When Dwight Howard was still playing really, really well, ran him out of Houston. He would he went up there and got him out of there. Uh, he, they got CP3, who who is one of the is going to go down as one of the best point guards of all time, one of the toughest guys of all time. They yep. couldn't beat the Golden State Warriors. I know CP3 got hurt, but James Harden in in the in the biggest games has always magically went four for twenty and one for ten for three point range after hitting all types of threes in regular season. And that, then they traded and got Russell Westbrook, right? His homeboy, right? They got West, Russell Westbrook was, you know, the starter at OKC. Uh, and James was coming off the bench, et cetera, et cetera, right? Russell Westbrook is the ultimate uh, warrior because he plays hard regardless of, you know, whether he's playing in the YMCA, the rec league, or obviously in the NBA finals or any type of regular season game. Now, James Harden, after they fired his boy, Dan Tony, and the ownership one pony up for Tyron Lue, right? Give him the money that he want or the structure of contract or the authority, you know. Um, he went radio silence on, on the Rockets. And now he wants to go play with the Nets. Now he wants to find an easy way to go and assume, you know, Kevin Durant comes back and is 80% of the superstar player that he is with Kyrie Irving and go out there and try to, you know, be a I don't know where do you be the you know the third wheel in a championship and all of a sudden now he wants to go play with the New Jersey Nets then he's going to get there then it's going to not work out for him then he's going to want to go somewhere else and, and move on from there he had he had a reason why I'm putting him on blast is because he has to look at himself 
as a player. And everybody's done it. LeBron did it. Kobe did it after Shaq left. Um, Jordan did it before he could win a championship. Uh, you know, Kevin Durant did it when he, I think when he got to the Golden State Warriors, even though he still was, you know, I think the best, best player on their team. You know, Steph Curry, Steph Curry and Clay did it because they have to, uh, you know, play lesser roles on a night when Steph Curry's going off or Clay. They both know that they're superstars and, and you know, they got a third superstar out there with, with Dr- Draymond Green in a certain way. He's never done that. He's a ball heavy handler. He's a dribbler. Um, he's an isolation type of player. And that only works in the regular season. So instead of trying to go to another team, go to management and say, how can we build a team around me with me that can help win a championship versus trying to go join another ball heavy player in Kyrie Irvin, which is a one-on-one player and get with the best or one of the best all around players in Kevin Durant and think you're going to win a championship because ultimately what's going to happen is one of those two between James Harden and Kyrie Irvin, if this deal goes through is going to want the ball and want the credit and it's not going to work out and it's going to be an implosion it's going to be a, a, a dark spot on James Harden's resume, but I'm just putting them on blast because, you know, instead of getting better at the things that you know you need to get better at, you want to continue to do what you've been doing and it hasn't been working. So I think that's the definition of chaos or, or whatever it is. Uh, but he just seems to be the type of player that he sees everybody else winning championships and doing it the right way. And he wants to think that, oh, okay, I'm going to do it my way and still win. And it just won't work out for him. We've seen it with the Clippers. If he goes to the Nets, you're going to see it in the Nets. Um, and it's going to not work out well for James Harden. So I would put him on blast. And if I was advising him, I would take a pause for the cause and figure it out doing it the right way. And it might not happen this coming season in Houston, but in the year two or three, they, they can get it done if they go about it the right way. Yeah, it's crazy because I don't bet him, I guess, behind the scenes expressing that the Nets are a team that he would consider going to. Um, feels a lot to me like he might be interested in that. Maybe Kevin Durant would be interested in that. I don't think Kyrie Irving would have any interest in being in that situation. Like, I just don't think that – I couldn't see Kyrie wanting to do that. And part of the reason – and I would be surprised that Kevin want to do it. Um, And part of the reason is something that you hit on a little bit there, which is Harden has been unwilling to change his style of play to help the team have ultimate success. And see, the part of the problem to me with what was happening in Houston and what might continue to happen, because I don't know if the trade would end up happening because it's just going to be really difficult to do, is that they are really good in the regular season. They run up a lot of points. He can be in the MVP conversation. And so maybe you get kind of fool's gold or you get fooled into thinking that that's going to win you a championship, but it's not. Um, it, it just the way that he plays with that isolation ball, it just makes it easier when defense is really locking in the playoffs and you play and you're facing really good defensive teams like they faced when the Lakers broke them in the playoffs is that those teams are able to shut that down. Right. And so it just becomes a really big issue. Um, and it, 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 with him, if he was more willing to play a little bit off the ball to make his teammates better, it would actually benefit them. But it, he just seemed unwilling to do that. And so I'm with you putting him on blast. If he wants to go to the Nets, I think that that's crazy. Um, considering they've had like three different iterations of that Rockets team that could have been better. Like, I still think that the when they had Clint Capella. And yeah, Steve, I, was just, I was just about to say that. that he was went the up there. And was, he, that was the championship type of team. 
And when they got rid of Clint Capella, that let me know James Harden was okay with letting me score a whole bunch of points and he wants to win an, win another MVP because that's what he was always gunning for. Yeah, now that he sees MVP those, came up a lot about right. him wanting to win that. Right, and wanting to be thought of on the same level as LeBron. Well, you got to win, and you got to win, and you got to perform and, and, and win his big time, and James has not been able to do that. So when they got rid of Clint Capella, it was over. Yes and no, and you know what happened? This was funny. As soon as they got rid of Clint Capella, then they went out there and beat the Lakers after the Lakers had played like, you know, two out of the two, two games in like three days. And they, they you know, and, they, and during the regular season, they're a hard team to prepare for. And what people don't understand, if, if, if their if team is coming off back to back games, they kind of just get through the game so they can get some rest. Right. And so they they the not do as much scouting on a game by game basis. Right. Uh, right. And, and they, people don't understand it. Then it'd be, you know, came shockwaves. Oh, this could be a, you know, way of the future. They could, they can give everybody problems. Well, yeah, for the odd game where you're, hit, you know, hitting, you know, 40, 50% of your threes, yes, you're going to be a, a matchup problem for everybody. Even if you played the San, San Antonio Spurs when they were one of the best defensive teams of all time or the J- Detroit Pistons. But what you can't do that, you can't do that in a seven-game series. You can't do that all season. And that's what you see from James Harden. He spent so much energy in the first two-thirds of the season, that last third of the, of the year, he wears down because he's the type of guy that he – all, the first thing that he looks at when he walks in the locker room is his stats versus did we win? He, he's not the type of person like LeBron that'll go out there and play and play the same amount of minutes, you know, kind of save himself and be okay with scoring 16 points, eight rebounds, six assists, and a couple steals and be just happy doing that. Cause he knows at any drop, any time that he feels like it, he can put 36, 12 and 10 and eight blocks or whatever else you want up to it. James is never going to be like that. He, he can't go to a team, in my opinion, with a superstar top five player like Kevin Durant. So that'd be like Kevin Durant, Deron, say like, or Le- Kevin Durant, LeBron, a Kyrie, Ky- or I wouldn't say Kyrie, a Kawhi or somebody like that, or like a Luka. And then you have a Kyrie who is probably anywhere from like six to 10. So you got two A players. He can't be the third A player because he doesn't know how to play off the ball. He barely plays defense. And he doesn't distribute a basketball with his dribbling skills and his, his like handles, which I think are one of the best in the NBA. He could easily average 10, 12 assists and maybe average six less points, but he won't because all he wants to do is shoot and he wants to be able to draw fouls and, and do all that type of stuff. But when you have to win championships and make plays down the stretch, you got to be able to run offensive sets and you got to be able to execute. And sometimes it's not about you scoring. Absolutely. All right. We're going to leave it there uh, for this episode. Make sure you guys subscribe to this podcast everywhere you listen to them. Uh, Rate us, review us, and leave us a five-star review. If you leave four, I am inclined to think that you're a hater. Make sure that you are checking out the other podcasts on the Hale Varsity Network as well. The Mind Your Own Podcast, Varsity Club, more to it, and the Hale Varsity Radio Show. You can also email us at straightupbreakdown at halevarsity.com for any questions, comments, or concerns that you may have. Or you can find us on Twitter at Greg Smith hb and at foreman 5644 we will catch you next time